Hello, friends. Welcome to the Functional Nurse Practitioner Podcast. I'm a board-certified family nurse practitioner who believes in utilizing functional medicine strategies in order to provide a more comprehensive approach for optimal health. The current model of care in healthcare is very lacking, which led me down the road of functional medicine. Functional medicine is a systems biology approach, which looks at uncovering the root causes for the symptoms we are having in order to allow for healing versus simply applying a band-aid to the situation. I believe we need an integrative approach of both conventional and functional medicine in order to provide the best care possible. I feel so strongly about this that I had to leave my conventional medicine practice. While conventional medicine thrives with acute care issues, there is much to be desired with regards to chronic conditions. No longer could I practice in an institution where volume of patients rather than optimization of health was its driving force. I started my own practice specializing in functional medicine where I work with my clients to uncover their unique story. Utilizing the functional medicine timeline and matrix, identifying the antecedents, triggers, and mediators driving the disease process assists with getting to the root causes of the symptoms in order to allow for healing. This personalized approach leads to improved health outcomes. If you want to work with me and live in Indiana, head on over to my website at www.thefunctionalnursepractitioner.com and click the link to book your free introductory call. Just a quick disclaimer that this podcast is meant for educational purposes only and is not meant to diagnose or be a substitute for medical advice from your practitioner. Also, if you like what you hear on this show, I would be real appreciative if you would leave a review on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you're listening from, and subscribe to the show. Okay, on to today's episode. Today, we are diving deep into a vitally important topic, fatty liver disease, in particular, non-alcoholic fatty liver. It is estimated that around 25% of Americans have fatty liver disease. With regards to children, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the most common chronic liver disease with the prevalence of around 23 to 24% of children and teenagers and as high as 71% in obese children. This is a major problem. Fatty liver disease like atherosclerosis and many other chronic diseases used to be considered a middle-aged disease. Why are kids getting fatty liver? Am I the only one who finds this extremely problematic? We're going to talk about what exactly fatty liver is, risk factors for developing fatty liver. We will get into signs and symptoms, how it is diagnosed. Then we will get into the management of fatty liver disease. I will also touch on the importance of addressing this disease through a functional medicine lens. Fatty liver disease is not an acute condition. It is chronic. So, guess which lens I feel is the preferred lens for strategizing reversal. 
Believe it or not, the liver is very, very good at repairing itself. If this condition progresses to scarring or cirrhosis, the prognosis is much worse. I say, let's get ahead of the scarring and reverse this sucker. I am particularly interested in the liver for many reasons, but especially since my mom, my mother's sister, my aunt, and their father, my grandfather, all died of cirrhosis of the liver. Granted, their scarring was alcohol-induced, but nonetheless, I am very fascinated with zeroing in on the liver and what we can do to improve our odds. Let's dive right in. Fatty liver disease, or hepatic steatosis, is a condition in which there is an accumulation of fat in the liver cells. There are two types, alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. We will be focusing on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in this episode. What are some of the risk factors for the development of fatty liver disease? Obesity, high blood sugar, insulin resistance. I want to talk about this trifecta as a group. If fatty liver means we have accumulation of fat in liver cells, it makes sense that obesity would be a risk factor. Why is it that high blood sugar and insulin resistance are connected to fatty liver? Glad you asked. When we have high levels of sugar in our blood, either from consuming a lot of glucose, sugar, in foods or from high consumption of refined and processed foods, which turn to sugar in the body, our risk of insulin resistance goes up. Insulin is released from the pancreas in response to glucose in our bloodstream predominantly. Other factors can stimulate insulin, but that is a conversation for another day. Glucose needs a friend to get into our cells. That friend is insulin. We eat the sugar, insulin comes out to play, and then insulin knocks on the cell door, so to speak, and glucose gets to enter. When we have high amounts of glucose in the blood, more than one teaspoon of sugar is toxic to our bodies. One teaspoon. That's not very much. Back in the day, I used to eat a big bowl of Cheerios, add in sliced banana, mini marshmallows, and about three teaspoons of sugar. I don't feel like doing the math, but for the sake of our discussion, I will take one for the team. Let's say I consumed three cups of Cheerios. A serving size is one and a half cups. Let's be honest. Who would eat only one serving? Sometimes I feel like I ate the whole box. Let's stick with two servings. In one serving of plain Cheerios, there are two grams of added sugar. That's not so bad, is it? Let's look closer. There are 58 grams of carbs in two servings. Each serving has four grams of fiber. So if we take the carbs and subtract the fiber, we have 50 grams of carbs or net carbs, if we're being accurate. In our bodies, for the most part, carbohydrates turn to sugar. When I learned this, I was not happy. Remember my sweet tart days. If I was not diabetic, why would it matter? Keep listening. 
So we have 50 net carbs. One teaspoon of sugar is approximately five grams of carbs. So there are roughly 10 teaspoons of sugar in two servings of Cheerios. Now let's add in the marshmallows. Two thirds of a cup of marshmallows, that's about what I would put in my big bowl of Cheerios, contains 25 grams of carbs, of which there are 16 grams of sugar. Looking at the label makes me very sad. Corn syrup, sugar, dextrose, all types of sugar. If you missed episode five, what's the deal with sugar? Definitely go back and listen to it. It is eye-opening. There are so many hidden sugars out there, and manufacturers are brilliant at disguising them. Blue number one is in marshmallows. I don't recall them being blue. Why, oh why, is a toxic food dye in marshmallows? I digress. 25 grams of carbs is approximately 5 teaspoons of sugar. Next, the banana. One medium banana contains around 28 grams of carbs with 3 grams of fiber. That is 25 grams of carbs. Once again, roughly 5 teaspoons of sugar. What is our count up to? 10 plus 5 in the marshmallows plus 5 in the banana. That is 20 teaspoons of sugar. Plus the 3 teaspoons of sugar I would add to it makes the total count 23 teaspoons. Talk about a breakfast of champions. If our body can only process 1 teaspoon of sugar and finds more than that toxic, I was consuming 22 extra teaspoons of sugar. I wonder what my insulin levels were back then. Could this have anything to do with the marked rise in obesity, insulin resistance, and fatty liver disease in children? My body had to produce massive amounts of insulin to deal with all that toxic sugar. Whatever couldn't get into the cells would be stored as glycogen in the muscles, stored in fat tissue, and also accumulate inside the liver, leading to fatty liver disease. This trifecta, obesity, high blood sugar, and insulin resistance needs to be addressed. And frankly, we are doing a shitty job in conventional healthcare managing this very serious issue. What else is a risk factor? It is thought that there is a genetic predisposition. Friends, you know I am a huge fan of testing genetics. We need to remember that just because we have a genetic predisposition does not mean we will express those genes and have issues. If that was the case, I'd probably be dead by now. My genes show high impact for blood vessel damage, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and obesity. If I continued on the path I was on, the one with the heart-healthy Cheerios? Don't even get me started. You know I am being sarcastic and am very hyped up that we are so lied to. Many marshmallows and extra sugar added to make it super delicious. If I still ate that on a daily basis, how might my metabolic picture look? It's a low-fat, low-calorie breakfast. Isn't that healthy? Isn't that what we were told for years and years? I wish I knew what I know now back then. 
I would have done things very differently for myself, but especially for my kids. My youngest, Kevin, he's 24. He makes jokes sometimes saying things like, thanks, you did this to me. He has psoriasis, an autoimmune condition. There are days I feel the weight of my ignorance, and those days are difficult. I did the best I could with what I knew. He doesn't really blame me, and frankly, he is responsible at this point for the foods he puts inside his body, the way he moves his body, products he puts on his skin. I did the best I could and do not believe in beating ourselves up. If you are on a wellness journey and gradually making changes, celebrate yourself. I did not go from that shitty breakfast to my current morning smoothie in one day. It took time. I began seeing true success when I had my why. The why behind the change. Trust me, in the beginning, I don't think I could have seen the truth. Years of programming by manufacturers, commercials, marketing, I believed their lies. It wasn't until I really learned about ingredients, chemicals, the way products are manufactured, that I was ready to truly process the news. Another risk factor is metabolic syndrome. We talked about obesity, high blood sugar, and insulin resistance. Obesity, particularly central obesity, as in waist circumference, and high blood sugar are two of the five clusters of conditions of metabolic syndrome. High blood pressure, high triglycerides, and low HDL round out the remaining conditions. Metabolic syndrome is diagnosed when you have at least three of the five present. It makes sense that having metabolic syndrome would be a risk factor for developing non-alcoholic fatty liver. I do want to point out that high blood pressure on its own is an independent risk factor as it contributes to liver damage through inflammation and fibrosis, which is thickening or scarring. Other risk factors include PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. We did a whole episode on this common condition affecting those born with female parts. Episode 16, one of my most popular episodes to date. I can't even remember how many individuals I diagnosed with PCOS. If we are strategic in our interventions and look to reverse the condition and not just accept and medicate, no shame for those who are on medications for any condition, I get very hyped up with regards to informed consent. Did your practitioner go over all concerning information before sending in your script? I am thinking in many cases, no. Do you know how many individuals I have partnered with in my practice who have been on metformin for PCOS for years, years, and they were never told the downstream effects like B12 deficiency, for example? Not okay, friends. If we look to the root causes for our symptoms, our conditions, diseases, whatever label we have been given, if we swim upstream, dramatic changes can happen, changes for the better. I went into healthcare because I wanted to help. I saw horrible care back in the day, particularly with my dad. 
I still do not understand why someone would choose a healthcare profession if they truly do not want to help others. Then I saw wonderful care, life-changing care with my grandfather and his team at the Oncology Radiation Center. I was using the other side of my brain. I was a full-time artist who knew nothing about health. I knew I needed to change my life. I wanted to be a part of others' journey and make the journey better. When I first went to nursing school and became an RN, I never imagined I would have my own practice. Through the years, I saw the breaks in the system. I saw the need for more. As a nurse practitioner, I was trained very well, trained to assess, diagnose, and manage all sorts of conditions. Nurse practitioners are also highly skilled with regards to caring for patients, looking for interactions with medications, and also listening, listening to our patients. It wasn't until I needed to know the why behind my own disease processes, I needed to know how to survive. If you've been listening for a while, then you know that I thought I had cancer. Jumping headfirst into functional medicine, applying and getting accepted into the Institute of Functional Medicine, it changed my life. Not only did I learn the necessary tools to unravel my own issues, but my professional life dramatically changed. Having your own business is hard. It's a lot of work. It is stressful. But I have never felt so aligned with my beliefs, knowing that there are so many ways to move the needle with regards to our health, move it towards disease or away. Partnering with my patients for their wellness journey feeds my soul, as corny as it sounds. I can't even describe the feeling. Sleep apnea. This is a common condition vastly underdiagnosed, where an individual stops breathing throughout the night. This isn't just a risk factor for fatty liver, but for so many other issues, including cardiac conditions. Practitioners listening, please screen your patients for sleep apnea. Hypothyroidism. You know, I am passionate about this. I will forever have hypothyroidism as I no longer have a thyroid. Yes, still salty about it, but it led me to where I am today. And I cannot express enough how grateful I am to be on the functional medicine pathway. Opening my own practice has enabled me to provide better care for my clients, focusing on strategies for optimizing health rather than succumbing to sickness. If you live in Indiana and would like to work with me, head on over to my website, www.thefunctionalnursepractitioner.com and schedule your free introductory call. There are also certain medications that increase the risk of developing fatty liver, corticosteroids, and we're talking about chronic use, not a one-time use because you got chiggers, for example. This happened to me before. Antidepressants, antipsychotics, and most commonly, tamoxifen. I am thinking of doing a whole show on tamoxifen in the future. This is a medication commonly used for breast cancer, something I gave often when I worked in oncology. There is some very interesting literature out there, and I feel called to bring it into the light. A little teaser, the correlation between genetics and tamoxifen. If you are interested in a show on this topic, 
send me a DM on Instagram at the functional nurse practitioner, and I will add it to the list. What is left on the list of risk factors? Lifestyle. I love this one. Are we moving our body? Are we sedentary? Movement helps our body to utilize the glucose in our foods. I definitely do not recommend adding in extra sugar, at least not on a regular basis. Do I occasionally, as in every few weeks or even months, have a decadent dessert? You betcha. I always try to do this after I've consumed a balanced meal so my blood sugar doesn't skyrocket. I do not feel well when this happens. I end up with a migraine, cramps, and extreme moodiness. Who knew that foods we eat can cause these types of symptoms? I am feisty today, friends. What are some of the signs and symptoms of fatty liver disease? Fatigue is very common. Right upper abdominal pain, an enlarged liver, or even an enlarged spleen. If the condition has progressed, we may even have signs of chronic liver disease such as jaundice, which is a yellowing usually seen in the whites of the eyes or even the skin. I have seen many patients with severe jaundice, especially through my work with hospice. It is very recognizable, the yellowing. Liver function tests may be mildly abnormal. Central obesity, weight around the middle, may be present. You may feel nauseous or have a loss of appetite or even weight loss. Mental confusion may be present. This is particularly worrisome as it usually indicates a progression of the disease. Swelling in the abdomen or the legs. This too is more likely with advanced stage disease. I say, let's get ahead of this disease. How is fatty liver diagnosed? First and foremost, a comprehensive history and physical exam are so important. When I do the timeline in Matrix, I have a few videos on my website, link in the show notes, where I go more in-depth about what this is, as it is the holy grail. Is that the right explanation? It is definitely eye-opening, and the Matrix in particular becomes the blueprint for your wellness journey. It takes me 90 minutes to go through this. How long do you sit and talk with your practitioner? Five minutes? Seven? Maybe 15? You just cannot gather the necessary information in that short of a time. The physical exam may show an enlarged liver, tenderness in the upper abdomen, or jaundice, that yellowing we talked about earlier. There is some crucial blood tests such as fasting glucose and fasting insulin. Lipid profile, looking to assess metabolic factors such as triglycerides and cholesterol levels. Your practitioner may test for hepatitis B and C to exclude viral liver diseases. Liver enzymes, we talked about earlier, are usually elevated with fatty liver and may lead your practitioner to order an ultrasound of your liver, which is considered to be the imaging of choice for diagnosis. The only way to be certain of the cause of the liver damage is to have a liver biopsy. Tissue doesn't lie. The doctor I used to work with, she is a surgeon, a brilliant surgeon. She used to say to me, tissue doesn't lie. This is so true. I want to bring up a newer body of evidence showing the correlation between fructose consumption 
and fatty liver disease. What is fructose? Fructose is the natural sugar found in fruits. Fructose is also added in to various processed foods and drinks. When we eat a fruit like an apple, we're getting fructose, but also fiber and the polyphenols found in the fruit. When we drink a juice or a soda, we're only getting the fructose. Why does this matter? Fructose is predominantly metabolized in the liver. Glucose is used throughout the body. Glucose raises our blood sugar. Fructose, on the other hand, does not. Isn't that a good thing? Fructose metabolism involves the stimulation of de novo lipogenesis, or DNL. This is a process that converts extra carbs into fatty acids. When we have increased DNL, we begin to accumulate triglycerides in the liver, which contributes to the development of fatty liver. I feel the need to state that when I'm talking about the risks related to fructose, I am not talking about fruit. There is a big difference between natural fruit that contains fructose and industrial fructose that is used in drinks and all kinds of processed foods. There are many moving parts with regards to fructose, industrialized fructose. Our gut, the barrier, and our microbiome are affected by dietary fructose. I care very much about this because it not only poses the risk of developing fatty liver, but a myriad of negative possibilities like diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and cancer. Fructose metabolism has been linked with oxidative stress and inflammation, two things that can negatively impact our health and lead to the progression of fatty liver, to scarring of the liver. At all costs, I would avoid any industrialized fructose, really all added sugar, if optimal health is desired, should be avoided, if at all possible, as a regular practice, but in particular, fructose. Along that note, processed foods not only have been linked with the development of fatty liver, but also the progression. Refined carbohydrates and added sugars increase fat accumulation in the liver and can worsen insulin resistance and inflammation, which are key components of fatty liver disease. Another consideration are trans fats. Trans fats are hiding in so many processed foods. I will try to contain my rant. One of the reasons I avoid fried foods if I'm out at a restaurant are not only for the cross-contamination with gluten, but also for the high amount of trans fats that are in these processed fried foods made with shit seed oils. Trans fats can further exacerbate fatty liver and also threaten our cardiovascular system. I don't think it's worth it at least not on a regular basis. Another reason why I am a fan of informed consent. Are you informed of the ingredients in the foods you consume? I feel like most of this is not common knowledge. At least it wasn't for me most of my life. When we eat a highly processed food that has been stripped of its nutrients and fiber, they have a high glycemic index. 
can cause a rapid spike in blood sugar. A diet high in processed foods can cause or worsen insulin resistance and fat accumulation in the liver. There are also chemicals used for preserving foods, food dyes, artificial sweeteners. Speaking of artificial sweeteners, I was approached for a sponsorship. I really, really wanted to love the product. As soon as I saw sucralose, I was like, I'm out. No amount of money in the world would make me recommend this poison. My friends, you know I am opinionated. I have seen the research and I can't unsee it. I used to buy juice made with sucralose, also known as Splenda, thinking I was doing something good for my body. Now I see there is no benefit of juice. It's better to eat the whole fruit. And there is definitely nothing good about artificial sweeteners. Let's talk about management of fatty liver disease. I am happy to report that weight loss through a healthy diet and exercise regimen are the first-line treatment in conventional medicine. Where I feel conventional medicine falls short is in the education piece of this. Hearing the words diet and exercise mean nothing. What kind of coaching are we giving our patients and clients? Functional medicine broadens the lens and also looks to personalize this approach as we are all unique and may require a different strategy. Food preferences and food sensitivities need to be appreciated, as well as cultural considerations. Focusing on nutrient-dense foods that are naturally anti-inflammatory are oftentimes my starting point. Fruits, yes, fruits don't need to be avoided. Whole fruits, vegetables, healthy fats, complex carbs to replace simple ultra-processed ones, foods that are lower on the glycemic index. I always counsel my clients to avoid any liquid food, air quotes over here, anything with real or fake sugar added, I recommend steering clear of, at least on a regular basis. It is also vitally important to get to the root causes of why fatty liver developed in the first place. Is there underlying diabetes or cholesterol issues? What about the thyroid? We need to look at the whole person, not just the disease. The diagnosis is the starting point, not the end point. I also think it is vitally important to avoid alcohol. We don't want to cause any further stress to the liver. This also includes other toxins, even toxins we may not be thinking about, like in our personal care products. Our body needs to process the overwhelming load we put into it. I will refer you to two episodes in particular, episode three, xenobiotics, and episode 12, the exposome. Really great and vitally important information in both those episodes. We need to address your microbiome and overall gut health. We may do expanded testing, such as a comprehensive GI panel, to assess for imbalances, intestinal permeability, and also inflammation. That can steer your strategic action plan that may include prebiotics, probiotics, supplements such as vitamin E, vitamin C, omega-3 fats, milk thistle. I do love milk thistle for the liver, NAC, and acetylcysteine, and many others. 
This is not an endorsement to run out and buy all these supplements. I do feel this needs individualization and working with a seasoned practitioner who can guide your strategy. Oftentimes, the supplement plan stems from the underlying root causes and not just looking at fatty liver. There are other considerations as well. How are you sleeping? What are you doing for stress management? If we have poor sleep and or an upregulated sympathetic nervous system, there will be downstream effects like inflammation, insulin resistance, and altered intestinal permeability. Can you see how everything is connected? Last week on the show, we spoke about the vagus nerve. I think this may be my favorite episode so far. Hard to choose, but friends, we all need to learn how to down-regulate our sympathetic nervous system. Listen to episode 35 if you missed it. Lastly, we need monitoring and follow-up, retesting relevant markers through blood testing and follow-up ultrasounds are important to assess disease progression. Ideally, we want to see things improve. There may be other emerging concerns that will need to be addressed. Pharmaceuticals may or may not be suggested. I am a functional medicine practitioner, but I am not against medication. We may need to add something in temporarily to support your system. Ultimately, this needs to be a discussion between you and your practitioner, one where risks versus benefits are talked about and you make the decision. You need all the information so it will be an informed decision. The diagnosis of fatty liver disease can be difficult and depending on the level of damage to the liver may be quite significant. Please, whatever you do, Take it seriously. If you don't trust the practitioner you are working with, find someone else. We don't want to mess around with our liver. And on that note, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that you learned something. If you have an idea for a show, send me a DM. I always love hearing from you. I hope you enjoyed spending time with me today and I will see you very soon. Bye friends.